Good morning. Hope you've had a good weekend. I'd like to invite you, if you would, to open God's Word to the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verses 1 through 9 is where we're going to be today. Uh, this morning already, I heard uh, two people say that God had answered your prayers as you've as you been praying for their loved ones. So grateful to hear that June Morgan, she had had a tough week, but uh, Jerry Dar wrote and said, my mom is doing amazingly well today. So she said, it's like amazing. And then also John Knesset had said, Miss Sue had had a difficult week, but she's doing better. So anyway, thank you so much for praying for others in our church family. God is hearing those prayers and answering those prayers. I am also grateful for physicians. I thank the Lord for doctors and nurses and those who take care of us. I'm grateful for my physician who takes excellent care of my health. And, uh, you know, the thing about physicians, you know, Luke was a physician, right? Colossians 4 verse 14 calls him the beloved physicians. And I appreciate that physicians tell us the facts. They tell us the truth about how we're doing in our health. Physicians make an ethical pledge known as the Hippocratic Oath. It's named after a Greek physician who practiced medicine over 400 years before Luke was even born. Part of a doctor's oath is first do no harm. Uh, from one of his works uh, called Of the Epidemics, that's what uh, Hippocrates wrote. He also said in another place, I will follow that system of regimen which according to my ability and judgment, I consider for the benefit of my patients and abstain from whatever is deleterious and mischievous. So I thought to myself, thank the Lord, you know, for those that tell us, hey, how am I doing? Uh, well, they know there are some things that are essential for our human life to continue. What things would you put on the list? Last night during our walk, uh, Jody said, I'd certainly have chocolate on the list. And I thought, what? Now, I remember one time uh, Clayton Wallen threatened my life when I was at Nancy's eating chicken. He said, you're not eating beef? And so anyway, I think he would have beef on the list. But if I were to make a list of the essentials for physical life, then I would at least mention these five. I would say definitely oxygen. Uh, without oxygen, uh, we're going to suffer and the damage can begin as soon as 15 minutes, but also water. Most cannot survive beyond three to four days without water. Now, I know Pine Cove summer staffers, they can go longer. They're out there all the time. And so maybe they would uh, be able to go many days longer, but eventually it catches up with everyone. Definitely we need food, we need nutrition. So some could last without food, perhaps even up to two weeks. Uh, Shelter is important, whether we realize it or not. If we're out of the sun, then that's a big thing. And I think it's big because we need to maintain our body temperature, somewhere close to 98.7. But if it's cold outside and your body temperature drops below 82 degrees, or if it's hot outside and your body temperature goes above 111, then you could have some serious uh, trouble quickly. Of course, I would put rest on there. It's not a good idea to push the limits on sleep deprivation, especially going like into a three-day range and, and longer. But what would you put on that list? You know, there are some things that are just essential in life. Jesus was similar to a physician. He told people what was best 
for their spiritual health and their eternal lifespan. He didn't tell people what they wanted to hear. He told them what they needed to hear. So today, I pray that you'll be open to what the Holy Spirit will say to you from the Word and through the Word of God as we look together at Luke 13, verses uh, 1 through 9. In honor and reverence of God's Word, would you stand with me as I read this passage? We'll pray and then we'll get started. Here's what it says in Luke 13, verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will also, you will all likewise perish. And he told the parable, a man had a, a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for the three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put manure on it. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Let's go to the Father in prayer. Oh Lord, I thank you so much for being a God who is truth. You are the truth. Your word is truth. You always tell us what is true, what's right. We can depend on you. So thank you, Lord, that you always have our best interest in mind. As a matter of fact, you want each person in this room to spend eternity with you in heaven. You want it so badly that you gave your son to die in our place on the cross. When he died on the cross, our understanding from scripture is he took our punishment that our sin deserved. He took it upon himself so that we could be forgiven, so that our sin debt could be canceled. Thank you, Lord. So we know that you love us. We know that you're gracious and merciful, but you are also holy. You're also righteous. You're just as well as gracious and merciful and loving. So help us to look at this passage and listen closely to what you'll say to each one of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. You know, as the great physician, Jesus gives a diagnosis of the spiritual disease of humanity. You know, in Romans 3.23, God says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us are exempt from that same spiritual disease of sin. Then he gives the prognosis, explaining the future course of sin if left alone, along with his recommendation for how it can be removed. That, of course, is through repentance and faith in him. 
So I want us to listen closely to what he will say to us through this passage of scripture. First, I want you to notice that we need to learn that problems can lead us to repentance. Problems in life, I'm talking about serious problems, life and death type problems. Those problems can, if we will let God work with us, they can lead us in the direction of repentance. I want you to look at verses one and two and also verse four. You'll find in this, these verses, there are two kinds of tragedies in this text. One is a, is a terrible tragedy caused by man. So we'll call it one with human causes. Have you ever known of anyone who is a man, a woman, and they did something terrible? And it was like they used the freedom that God had given them to do something horrible in life. Well, that's an example that he gives in verses one and two. But then you, you drop down to verse four and the other tragedy is not from human causes, but just sort of like a random accident. One of those natural things that can just happen over time. You see, the first problem was mentioned by the crowd. Someone within the crowd brings this up, something that Pilate had done. The second problem was not brought up by the crowd. It was brought up by Jesus, by the Christ. So he puts alongside that tragedy, a second tragedy. There was a, pre, a presumption that was confusing the crowd. Some of them were confused about something. And so the Lord was trying to help them to navigate through it. Perhaps you've had this same confusion in your life. You see, the Jewish people had this idea that good things always happen to good people. Bad things only happen to bad people. If something bad happens to you, something terrible, it's because you had hidden sin in your life. And so that's why they assumed bad things happen because we deserve it. So I want you to listen closely to how Jesus responds to this presumption. It's like a theological presumption. And the presumption was God punished these Galileans for their sins through a savage act of violence committed by a cruel, oppressive government. Was that God that led Pilate to do that? Did God want Pilate to murder all of these Galileans who were in the temple? They were offering up their offerings. And so there they were, they were killed. The second problem Jesus brings up alongside of it addresses not human atrocities, but these random accidents that can happen in life. There was this tower that was uh, in Jerusalem. Some say it would have been at the southeast corner, somewhere in there. Perhaps it was uh, built by a pilot, by an aqueduct that they wanted to have to bring water in there. But nevertheless, something went wrong and the, aque the aqueduct or the tower fell. And when it just collapsed, 18 people suddenly were killed. So there was this struggle over why were these people, you know, some Pharisees would have said, I can understand why those Galileans, you know, were murdered by Pilate because they're always, you know, doing some kind of revolt. But I don't understand why here in the capital of Jerusalem, why would these people around our city be killed, these 18 people be killed suddenly by this accident? Why did this happen? And so I want you to listen closely as we go through this passage, because I think the Lord's going to show that there's something that he wants to answer 
there's something that we need to know. You'll notice that Jesus did not answer the why question. Sometimes that's our question, isn't it? Why did this happen? Why did Pilate murder all of those Galileans? They were in there, they were innocent. They were offering up a worship uh, sacrifice in worship. Why would they die? And then the other one is the tower that fell on the 18 people. And so maybe they were trying to say, maybe now the zealots, the Galileans, some of those that were against the, the uh, government of Rome, they were saying, oh, I know why it happened. You compromised with the Romans. That's why that tower fell. So everybody's blaming someone else. And so you look at this passage and you're thinking, does Jesus address the why question? He doesn't. But what he does address is the where answer. The where where should tragedies and problems and mysteries in life, where should it take us in our, in our relationship with God? It should take us in the direction of repentance. You see, it's not a reason from the past, who was God punishing back here? What if the answer is, he wasn't punishing anybody back there. It wasn't someone's sin that caused that. Of course, sin does have negative consequences. We know that. But not all terrible tragedies happen because of sin. And so Jesus is not addressing the past and whose fault, whose reason, what's the reason for this happening. What he's saying is, here's the road that you need to be focused on in your life as you go toward the future. So I want you to see next the priority of living by repentance. Verses 3 and 5, I think, address this. Jesus is reminding them life is fragile. Life itself on this planet is unpredictable. And one thing that's clear is he's saying life is temporary. Life here is temporary. But life in heaven, life in hell, life in eternity, that's forever. And so what we have to do is to think, oh no, these people lost their life in this life. So where will I go when I die? What's ahead? What's down the road for me? There's a priority that we should say, okay, I want to live by the priority that Jesus outlines here. He says, were they worse sinners? Were the, the Galileans, were they worse sinners than all the other people in Galilee? And what is Jesus' answer? No, no, they weren't worse sinners, I tell you. And then you look at uh, the people who died in Jerusalem when the tower fell. Were they worse offenders than all the other people living in Jerusalem? And his answer is the same, isn't it? No, I tell you. But each time he says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent. So I just kind of froze that frame. And I thought, what can we learn about the priority of repentance from just those words? No, I tell you, but unless you repent. And I would like to try my best to explain to you what is repentance? How does it done? Why is it needed? What happens? Why does God want us to repent anyway? So let me give you four different ways of understanding these words. The first thing I want you to notice is when he says the word no. Are you okay if God tells you no? Is it okay or should you be able in your life to say, if I say it's okay, it's okay. But you see, where we come in life is whenever we recognize, what if my creator says that's not good for you? 
and that's not good for your family. That's not good for other people. So I'm telling you, no. So the first thing I want you to do is to say, wait a minute, he's actually talking to me. He says, no, I tell you. And so the first thing is, I've got to shift the focus from other people to my life. Whenever there's suffering all around me, I've got to stop saying, how bad are they? And I've got to look at my own life and say, am I right with God? Is everything okay with me? I've got to turn my focus because he says uh, four times the pronoun you, doesn't he? I tell you, unless you repent. I tell you, unless you repent. He uses you four times. Sometimes it's really easy whenever we're going to say, well, I know I'm so much better than that person. And maybe you are in your eyes. But you see, God doesn't grade on the curve. You see, God's not saying, if you're better than this person, you get to be accepted. If you're better than that person, all those selfish things, all those prideful things, all those lies you've told, whatever you've stolen, it doesn't matter because you're certainly better than that person over there. He doesn't grade like that. His grade is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So even though you might be able to say, I'm way better than that pastor up there, that, that might be true. I give you that. But you know what? Whenever you look at the righteousness of Jesus Christ, would you say that you have no sin? Whenever the Bible says no, all of us have sinned. So that's why he's calling the Pharisees. He's calling the Galileans. He's calling the Zealots. He's calling, he's calling us this morning. Let's look at our lives. Let's say, wait a minute. I'm not going to talk about someone else right now. He's saying to me, are you right? So I'm going to have to shift my focus to look at my own life. And then the other thing I notice is when he says no, are you willing to say, I want to stop living my life for sin? Are you willing to say that? Not that you can do that by yourself because none of us can, okay? None of us. Even though I'm saved by grace, I still struggle. I'm still broken. We always will be. But here's the thing. Am I willing to say, you know what? I'm tired of that. I'm tired of having self in the center. I'm tired of living for sin. I'm ready to say, okay, I'm going to stop living my life for sin. That, I think, is a huge, you know what? And, and I noticed, have you ever noticed in 2 Chronicles seven fourteen, whenever the Lord says, what do you need to do in order for your land to be healed? He says you need to uh, humble yourself, you need to pray, you need to seek his face, you need to turn from your wicked ways. But who does he say should do that? Us. He says, if my people, if my people will do this. So first, he wants to start with us and say, I need to say in my life, Lord, I want you to stop me from disobeying you from living a life of rebellion. So that's where it begins with saying, I'm okay, Lord, if you tell me no. If you're willing to do that today, I'm telling you, it's just a couple more steps down the road and things are gonna be going great because the Lord is gonna be working in your life. But the first thing you gotta do is you gotta stop blaming everybody else and you gotta start saying, what about me? Second thing you gotta do is say, I am sick and tired of living my life for sin. Here's the third thing you need to do. Surrender your life to the Savior. Surrender your life to the Savior. 
He says, no, I tell you. Do you like to be told what to do? Most of us in humanity, we don't like for other people to tell us what to do. But whenever we come to Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, we have to say, Lord, you know what? I'm ready to surrender my life to the Savior. And I'm willing for you to tell me what to do. It's not enough just to say, you know what? I'm sick and tired of all this sin. You know what? I, I do realize that I've got problems as well as somebody else. We have to also say, you know what? I'm going to surrender my life to Jesus Christ. And I'm going to say, okay, I want to do what you tell me to do from now on in my life. So that's the third thing. There's just one more thing. If you're willing today to shift the focus from others to your life during suffering, if you're willing to say, okay, I want to stop living my life for sin. Okay, I want to surrender my life to the Savior. There's just a fourth step and you're there. Swivel. Have you ever been on a swivel chair? I like to sit on swivel chairs. I've got swivel chairs in my office. When I first got them, nobody knows this. I'm glad we didn't have cameras in those days. But when I swiveled the chair, I fell out of that thing. You know, it can swivel and can be tough stuff, you know. But swivel your life toward the scriptures. To swivel means you were facing this way and now you're going to face that way. That's all repentance is. It just means that you're going to admit to God, you know what, Lord, I've been going this way. I've been going toward the world. I've been going towards sin. I've been going towards self. But I'm tired of that now. I want to follow Christ. And so I'm willing to swivel, to swivel my life toward the scriptures and to do what you say and to follow you. That is a priority that Jesus is saying everybody needs. Everybody, me included. So are you willing to do those, those four things that make up repentance to say, see, repentance isn't just feeling sorry that you did it. That's, that's a great start. It's just not far enough. And repentance is also not the same as penance. Some people think, well, I did something really bad, so I'm going to do something really good. It's like whenever I come home and I've got flowers in my hand and Jody's first word is, what did you do? You know, it's like nothing. I just wanted, no, she doesn't say that. But all I'm saying is it's where we feel like I can make up for something bad if I just do enough good. But you see, that's not right. Only the blood of Christ can remove our sins because he was perfect. That's why he died on the cross. So what happens if some refuse to learn about repentance as they go through life? Some people are just saying, you know what? I'm not going to repent. Well, Jesus answers that question for us two times, also in verses three and five. He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's clear. As a matter of fact, he wanted it to be so clear for the people that were in the crowd that day. He said it twice. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. How about that? Two different times. What he wants you to realize and what he wanted them to realize, what he wants me to realize is that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is not just physical death. That's what they were focused on, right? But Jesus said, oh no, there's a more serious death than that. Spiritual death. The wages of sin is spiritual death. 
where we're separated from God for all eternity. You don't want that. You want God to be there when you need him. And so I got to looking at this word perish. You know, John 3, 16, it has that word perish in there, right? You know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the heart of God. God's heart for you. He's trying to stop you. He's trying to say as you're going through your life, don't forget this one. Don't forget, if you don't receive my love, you're going to perish. And I want you to experience eternal life with me in heaven. I wrote down three things about perishing. When he says, unless you repent, you will. You will. You will. Let that sink in. Perishing spiritually is unavoidable. You will, he says. And the reason we will perish is because right after John 3.16 comes John 3.18, where if we do not believe in the Lord, the condemnation of God, later he says in John 3.36, same chapter, that the wrath of God is on us already. So it's like already we're guilty of sin, but Jesus is saying, hey, I, I paid that for you. Would you just come over on this side? Come this way. I've already paid that for you. You don't have to pay that price. But if you reject his offer and say, no, I'd rather go with the world. I'd rather go with self. I'd rather go with sin. Then I'm just telling you, I'm warning you. Jesus is warning you. You will. It's not maybe. You will. It's unavoidable. The perishing is unavoidable. It's also universal. He said, you will all. You will all. I know there's a lot of good people. I've met so many good people in Columbus. I love Columbus. I love the, the community of Columbus. I love this church. I love all of you. You mean a lot to me in my heart. And so what Jesus is saying is everybody all over the world, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, whether people are educated or uneducated, whether they're rich, whether they're poor, it doesn't matter how old they are. What he's saying is all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because of our sin debt, we're going to perish every single person. And so if we're not in heaven with him, we should read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. It's sobering because it says we'll be in a place where God is not. And so we'll be separated from the Lord. Perishing is universal. Perishing is unavoidable. And the last thing he says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So it's unescapable. It's unescapable. It's, it's terrible, it's terrible, brutal violence, what Pilate did, right? It's terrible. Nobody would say that was a good thing. It's a horrible thing that a tower just suddenly collapsed and fell on 18 people that were there that day. And those 18 people in Jerusalem, they died. Doesn't matter if you're a Pharisee, if you're a zealot, everybody ought to agree with that, right? It's terrible. But what God is trying to say is, it's more, it's more serious if you go through life and you refuse to repent of sin and trust in his son, his provision, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what he does next is also very important. Next, with this context of people refusing to repent, Jesus says, maybe I need to help them have a visual. You like, you like to have it kind of more where you can see it? So Jesus gives a visual, it's a parable. 
This parable is known as the parable of the barren fig tree. And so what the barren fig tree parable tells us is it's possible for God to give someone life. You are like a tree. I'm like a tree, like a plant. But as we go through life, it's possible for us to have no fruit that looks like repentance. Have you ever known somebody in your life and you say, are you a Christian? And they say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. And then you think, I don't see anything in your life that looks anything like Jesus, the Bible, you know, godly things. There's like nothing. But you see opposite things in their lives. This parable is written to people like that. You see, the biblical image is for Israel. Israel was often compared to a fig tree. Israel was sometimes compared to a vine. Israel was sometimes compared to an olive tree. But one of those emblems that God chose in the scriptures was a fig tree. Now, the owner of the vineyard, he decides, I'm going to plant a fig tree in with all the grapevines in the vineyard. So he plants this fig tree there. He gives the fig tree three years and he keeps coming back and he thinks there's no fruit on that tree. He'd come back over and over again for three years. He kept coming back, the owner did. And so what I want you to see is he was looking for something on that tree that he had planted. Don't you think God made you? You know, I couldn't survive without oxygen. Remember the beginning? I couldn't survive without water. Does God really love you and does God really love me? Yes, he does. You know why we know that? Because he put us on the one place that has oxygen and water. And we wouldn't make it without those two. And so I'm just so grateful that he loves us. He thinks of what we need. And it's not that he's trying to be mean. It's just that he's looking on our lives. And you know what he says about this tree? He said, I didn't find any fruit. Look at it again. He said, look, for three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. And so the owner doesn't like it. It's just wasting space in the vineyard. He says, cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? But then there's this other person in this parable and it's the vine dresser. Someone has said that the owner of the vineyard represents the father who gives us life, who loves us so much that he sent his son, right? His son would be the vine dresser in this parable. Jesus is the vine dresser. Three years, isn't it striking that for three years, Jesus had his public ministry there with these people. Three years, he's been serving among them. And all three years, it's like the father's coming to Israel and he's saying, I don't see the fruit for those three years of my son's ministry here that I was expecting to see. You know, the, the idea there is we should bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Because remember, repentance, that's the topic, right? That's the context, right? So repentance is the context. And the Lord is saying, I'm looking for the fruit of repentance. And I just don't see it. You know, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Whenever somebody truly experiences salvation in their life, their life changes. There's, a, there's fruit. There's a difference. But I like the end of the parable 
because I think it's quite powerful because you know what it points to? The patience of God. I love that. I love that. Listen to what the vine dresser says. He answered him, sir, did you catch the, the respect? Did you catch, catch the way of interaction? If it does represent the father and the son, did you catch the interaction there? Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. It's, it's so amazing because it's almost like the justice of God, the righteousness of God is having a conversation with the mercy of God. The mercy of God is there and saying, how about one more year? One more year. I got to thinking, you know, what about the people we love? The people that we love who still are saying, I don't need Jesus. I'm okay the way I am. They refuse to repent. They refuse to turn and do that U-turn. And so what they're saying is, that's okay. And I think to myself, what if God says, I'll give you one more year? What if God says, I'll give you one more month? What if he says, I'll give you one more week, one more day, one more hour, one more minute? See, we don't know. That's the thing. We don't know. But I, what I wanted you to see, though, is that the mercy of God and the justice of God, they're not at odds. They are in agreement because the mercy of God says, then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. You see, the father provided his son. His son said, yes, father, I will go. I will go and I will lay down my life in their place. So God's righteousness and justice, it balances perfect with his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness, because it is available. And so God says, you know what? I'm going to also mix in patience. I'm going to give you some more time to get this right. But here's the thing. I want to kind of wrap it up with this. On March the 19th, 1971, there was some Wycliffe missionaries serving in the country of Papua New Guinea. We have some missionaries who serve there now, but this was back in 1971. It was a Sunday afternoon. It was three o'clock. What will you be doing at three o'clock this Sunday afternoon? Don't call my house. It gets real quiet around my house on Sunday afternoon at three. But Walt and Vonnie Steinkraus and their two daughters, Carrie and Kathy, they were just kind of resting, hanging out together in their house in Papua New Guinea. They lived on a, on a piece of land and there was a river and on the other side of the river was a huge mountain. And suddenly, half a mile of the mountain just collapsed and just came like a lightning boat down the side of that mountain, crossed the river, and just buried that whole place where they lived with 10 feet of soil, of mud, and so forth. What, why did this happen? Well, once again, I can't give you the answer of why that would happen. But here's the thing I would know if they're Wycliffe missionaries, they were ready. They were ready. They didn't know when their time would come, but they were ready. 
whenever it would come. So that's all we have to say is, you know what, Lord, I want to be ready, just like the Steinkraus family. Because we don't always get to choose, right? Those guys who went in there to worship in Galilee, they didn't think that would be their last day of life when Pilate did that evil thing. And those that were walking along the wall of Jerusalem and suddenly the tower of Siloam falls, they didn't know. So what is it that God wants? He wants us, Jesus said it in his first message, to repent and believe in the gospel that's found in Mark chapter 1 verse 16. Paul said the same thing, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, it's not just guilty feelings. It's not just words, empty words. It's not just being Christian in name only. It's saying, Lord, I, I really want to turn from sin. I want to place my faith in Christ. I don't know when my time might come. You know what Jesus did? All of us had a sin debt, right? So Colossians 2 verses 13 through 14 says this, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your faith, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How could he do that? Just out of thin air, forgive us of our trespasses. Well, it tells us in the next verse, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside Nailing it to the cross. Nailing it to the cross. You know what God did? He said, I know you're not going to make it by yourself. So he said, my son's coming down there. And he's going to be nailed to the cross. And when he dies there, it's like that was the certificate of debt that I owed. Victor Morse, that you owed. Put your name in there. And so Jesus said, I'll die in your place. That's why it can all be forgiven. So all he's saying that he wants us to do is to say, you know what, I'm tired of living for sin. I'm ready to surrender to Christ. I want to do a swivel and I want to start following what you say. That's it. That's it. Would you follow Christ for the rest of your days? Are you at that point in your life? If not, we can still pray longer, but it would be great if you're there today. Why don't you stand with me? I want to lead us in a, a closing prayer. We'll offer a time of invitation. We sing a closing song here that's like our invitation song. This one happens to be, I Surrender All. What a perfect invitation song it is to say, okay, Lord, I don't have it all fit together, but I'm just going to surrender it all to you today. Would you come to the Lord as we do that? He went to the cross for you he rose from the dead. The father raised him three days later. He's alive. So you can follow him. Let's pray. Lord, please, you use this uh, invitation to draw those that don't know. They don't know for certain that they're ready. But I believe you want them to be ready. You wanted those people that you were talking to back then to be ready. And so, Lord, you've had this message brought across our hearts. So now bless the, the truthfulness of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is a ministry of First Baptist Church located at 1700 Milam Street, Columbus, Texas.